When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, August 16, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Real Vision's Jack Farley and our guest, Jared Dillian from the Daily Dirt Nap. Let's take a look at what's happening right now. Uh, S&P 500 takes out another 52-week high after overcoming a pretty sloppy open on the day. Uh, Looks like closing out the day at 4,479, up uh, only three quarters of 1% on the day. Uh, Dow uh, also fractionally higher, NASDAQ fractionally lower, closing at 14,793. And the VIX looks like it tops uh, 16 up, uh, looks like 0.61%. Jack, what are you looking at right now? Growth in the New York State stalled for the month of July. That's according to the Empire State Manufacturing Survey. New orders and shipments grew modestly and input uh, prices continues to rise sharply. But the story, Ash, is a familiar one, the same one we've seen over the past few months, an expanding economy whose expansion is itself slowing down. Ash? Yeah. You know, Jack, talking about uh, pressure on global growth, looking at numbers coming out of China, uh, more essentially more pressure, industrial output and retail sales continued a very steep decline. Uh, July data, 6.4 and 8.4 for industrial output and retail sales. Uh, These are massive declines from peak, as you can see uh, by looking at the chart next to me right now. Interesting note, uh, a Bloomberg study over the weekend used a two-year average to strip out base effects from the pandemic. The result, notable, quote, a notable slowdown in retail sales in China. This is after removing pandemic base effects. Uh, Jack, I understand you're looking at another story on the Fed. Yeah, well, uh, Ash, that really is why the bond market has been rallying. It's been all too willing to forgive frothy inflation prints that we've seen over the past three months, namely because it is worried about a slowdown in growth. Of course, what it really hinges on on is the Federal Reserve. When will the Fed start to taper their asset purchases? Several Fed chairs have recently indicated that conditions for tapering could be much sooner than people think as early as of October as this year. I know Jared Dillian, our guest, has a really interesting take on this. Well, that's a perfect way to cue it up. Jared, welcome back to Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hey, 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 hey. So, um, you know, the Fed is the Fed basically gets like free tightening without any tightening. Like, you know, they can talk about tapering. Uh, they're very hawkish in their speeches. You know, I saw some stuff today. The Fed is getting more hawkish, um, and they can sort of, you know, talk down bond yields through this talk about tapering. But, uh, you know, really, ultimately, I don't think they're going to taper with unemployment at 5.4%. I don't think they're going to do it. So really what they're doing, I mean, it's it's actually some kind of sophisticated game theory by the Fed. Um, you know, they get to taper in this free way with, without actually having to tighten monetary policy. Um, and I think that when we get to October, I think, you know, there's a million reasons not to tighten and, you know, they'll have some excuse and we'll get pushed to December and we'll be into next year and, 
You know, they can't do this indefinitely, but they can do it for a while. Jared, that's a great point about this sort of moral suasion, the jawboning effect relative to what's actually happening. Jack, what are, uh, I want to jump in and uh, ask uh, Jared a few questions on that. What are your thoughts? Well, Jared, it seems to me that if what you're saying is correct, that the Federal Reserve is bringing people into the bond market because of they are, keep on talking about tapering, what they really want to forestall is a route in the bond market, the type that we saw in February and March. It seems to me, though, that this strategy uh, is a smart one, but it's one that has a shelf life. You can't do this forever. Uh, pretty soon, uh, not pretty soon, but eventually people, the, the, the particularly bond investors, are going to catch on to the game. What happens then? Well, what happens then is we'll get this big inflationary impulse in the stock market. Uh, the back end yields will go up. We'll get this big curve steepening. Gold will go up. And that's kind of when the inflation trade happens again. See, right now, you know, the market goes through phases of either believing or not believing the Fed. The Fed can have credibility or not have credibility. For some reason, right now, the Fed has lots of credibility. Uh, the market, when when you know, when the Fed says they're going to taper in October, like the market takes them at their word. Um, but that isn't always the case. And when belief turns into disbelief, and the market loses confidence in the Fed's proclamations, that's that's when you get that curve steepening and that inflationary impulse. Yeah. All right, guys. Let me throw this one out. We talk about uh, we talk about tightening. We talk about hawkishness coming out of the Fed. For folks who don't follow the bond market as closely as you do, Jared, and you do, Jack, uh, I would add this: it's not really it's not really tightening. It's just less loosening, right? It's not really hawkishness. It's just marginally less dovishness. We're talking about tapering back the rate at which the Fed is purchasing bonds certainly not unwinding the portfolio. I think it's important for people to keep that in mind when we talk about it. Give us a little bit of a context, Jared, about what you think about the, the overall big picture about where we are in this extraordinary cycle of loosening. Well, I, I mean, our definition of hawkish has certainly changed over time. Like they talk about the Overton window. Like we've definitely yeah. moved the Overton window, like cutting, cutting QE from 120 billion a month to 90 billion a month is hawkish now. Um, but having said that, you know, the last time the Fed tapered, you know, three, four, five years ago, um, that that actually did have a material impact on the markets, um, the stock market, the, the rate of change of the stock market went down, and there actually was a, a pretty big effect. So, you know, I think if the Fed did, still, let's just say for, hypothetically, they started to taper in October and it extended into next year, by the time they got around to talking about a rate hike, like the markets would be pretty choppy by then. Like it would actually, it does have an effect. Yeah, very well said. By the way, the Overton window, for those who don't follow political science, is the window of acceptable opinion. Uh, and that has shrunk basically around uh, the degree of loose monetary policy that we have right now. Jack, jump in. I wanna know what happens what assets will react once the Fed starts tapering? I know I've done a little bit of work on what happened when the Federal Reserve raised rates in 2018, and the stocks that were most affected tended to be actually long-duration technology stocks, not your cyclical stocks. However, it seems now that the market thinks that the, the ones that will be most affected by a tapering are the extremely cyclical ones, particularly the energy sector. Uh, Jared, you you have been an investor in the, in the energy sector um, this year, uh, as part of your inflationary thesis, do you agree with the market that 
these cyclical names, energy stocks, reflation names, oil, whatever you want to call it, are the ones that will take the most damage if the Fed starts to taper, to actually taper, rather than jawbone, as, as you said? Uh, it's hard to say. We don't, we don't really know. Um, you know, it, it could, when the, by the time the Fed actually tapers, it could be a sell the news event. And the market off, you know, frequently behaves in ways that are, you know, completely contrary to what we think is going to happen. You know, if we look at this in a very linear way and say the Fed tapers, cyclical stocks are going down, right? That looking at things in a linear way almost never works, right? The market does the opposite of what we think it's going to do. So I think it's entirely possible we get to October or whenever they taper next year or whatever, and they actually start and, you know, something different happens. It's probably a good thing, too. If markets were rational and linear, we probably wouldn't have a job. So it's a good thing that we have this complexity to sort through. Let me just ask you this, something that may seem like I'm throwing out a bit of a wild card here, but let me try and walk it back to where we are right now. One of the biggest news stories of the last, well, 20 years, uh, the Taliban seizing control in Afghanistan over the weekend, a massive news story. It's uh, very much reminiscent of a story going back uh, to 1975, April 30th, 1975, when the embassy at Saigon fell. The images are very similar. The emotional resonance of it is very similar. Here we are about 10 minutes into the daily briefing. We haven't even mentioned this yet. The question is this, has Fed policy, has the constant level of liquidity being pumped into uh, this system changed our perspective on how events influence markets. In other words, you have this seismic event uh, involving a 20-year commitment of troops uh, from the United States in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and it doesn't seem to be rattling markets one way or the other. What we're talking about here is what we always talk about, which is what the Fed is doing. Is that itself an index of how markets are being impacted by monetary policy? Jared? No, actually, I don't think it's an indication of that at all. Um, you know, first of all, Afghanistan doesn't have any financial significance at all. I mean, it has plenty, huge geopolitical significance, but it doesn't really have any financial significance. It has sentiment significance. Okay, so when we walked into the market this morning and stocks were down, uh, I mean, futures were down overnight. I forget how much they were down this morning, yeah. 70 basis points or something like that. I mean, that actually that was a product of the negative sentiment of what was going on in Afghanistan. What today is, it, it reminds me of the London bombings of 2007. Okay, the price action today is a direct parallel. We opened down, traded lower, and then rallied furiously into the end of the day, right? So basically, we we walked in with that negative sentiment, and the market sort of digested it and, and looked past it and said, okay, this, this doesn't have any long-term impact, and we rallied. So... Now, having said that, what's going on in Afghanistan, I think, um, makes me a little less bullish longer term, because what we've done is we've opened this geopolitical Pandora's box, okay? And, I, and I'm far from an expert on geopolitical stuff, so just maybe you should discount whatever I say. But I look at this, you know, as an outside observer, and I say we are perceived to be we being weak or ineffectual on Afghanistan which opens the door to Russia and China acting more aggressively. And those are those events, whether it's Russia and Ukraine or China and Taiwan, those are the types of events that are really black swan events that could happen at some point in the future. So the probability of something like that happening has gone up just a tiny amount. 
a tiny amount. So it makes me slightly less bullish. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. By the way, we should probably add President Biden speaking right now at this hour uh, around 4.15 Eastern time about Afghanistan. Jack, jump in. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Jared's well, got an interesting some, point on the sentiment indicator. Basically shrugged it off in eight hours. What are you thinking? I think that it does make some sense that if you know, you're know you Coca-Cola and 19% of your revenues come from Mexico and next is from the U.S. and you know not a lot comes from Afghanistan, it, it's not really going to impact the uh, the business there. So I don't see a reason why it would, you know, royal the equity market. Um, you did see some sell-offs in sovereign bonds, like the Pakistani bonds yeah. and the like. I, I uh, saw an article in the FT about that. I, I want to um, move topics of just, just get Jared's sense of last week's CPI print. And Jared, uh, on Friday, you had a, a daily dirt nap where the title was, The Numbers Are Bad. And that was a reference to a scene in the show Lost, of course, the numbers being 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, and 42. I want to ask you, are the numbers are bad? Are you referring to 5.0, 5.4, 5.4? That is the last CPI prints that we've had over the <laughs> last month. Because, Jared, it seems to me like if you or Peter Bookvar or a lot of you know, inflationary people with inflationary views had wrote down in, on, let's say, January of this year, your predictions for inflation, and then the deflationary people wrote down their predictions, it seems like you and Peter would definitely have been in the right. It's just that the asset markets haven't reacted accordingly. Accordingly, Bonds have rallied over the past two months. Cyclical stocks have gone down, not up. What's going on here? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it, I mean it, gets, it gets back to what I was talking about before. You know, I mean, the, the stock market, the financial markets frequently do the opposite of what we think is going to happen. So if, if, if I were able to predict like eight months ago that we'd have, you know, inflation close to 6% and, um, uh, you know, energy and cyclicals and all this stuff would be in like a six-month bear market, like you would have to be insane to come up with that prediction. Like that would, that would take an insane person. So I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it does have to do with positioning, you know, because, um, it, it, those, those trades, if you go back to February, March, uh, got pretty overextended. There were a lot of late longs. There was a lot of victory laps. Uh, I probably took some myself and you have to, you have to flush out the late longs. A lot of it's, a lot of it's just positioning. Okay. Yep. So I, I think it's, I really think it's, it's a consolidation that's going to resolve higher at some point. Yeah, if it doesn't make sense, it's often positioning. By the way, one of the best belly laughs we've had on the show in some time right there. Jerry. <laughs> uh, by the way, talking, uh, I should say, about inflation, deflation. Jack, we, uh, you did an expert view with Dan Rasmussen out today. Let's set up the clip for that. Jump in, Jack. Yeah, so, so Dan talked a lot about crisis investing, but we did ask him his view on inflation and what sort of assets perform well during inflation. Let's take a look. 
you got to be thinking about commodities if you're worried about inflation. I think people should be worried about inflation right now. Um, it's a risk. Now, risk doesn't mean there's a 100 percent chance it's going to happen, but there's a decent probability it will. And so you want to be prepared and thoughtful about what you're doing to protect your portfolio in the event of inflation. Now, um, the let's take the probably three biggest commodities um, in terms of their trading volume, which are energy commodities, specifically oil, um, uh, copper. Uh, and then gold. Um, and I know that people are going to say gold's a currency, and I get that argument. I agree with it, but let's consider it as part of commodities for now. Um, uh, uh, oil and copper are growth-linked commodities. So they do well when growth and inflation are rising. If inflation is rising and growth is falling, right, that's putting pressure on demand. So it can cause a falling price environment, even if there's inflation. Um, or you can have inflation that's you know caused, say, by oil. So depending on the cause of inflation, um, growth in copper might or might not work. But really think about them very robustly working in sort of the reflationary environment that we've been in uh, since spreads got started to tighten and um, and things really got going again, right? That was a reflationary environment. It's a classic environment, which in oil and copper really dramatically outperform. Um, but then as you enter the late cycles, growth starts falling and those demand pressures get put on the buyers of oil and copper. Um, it, it, their their reliability work is, is a lot lower. So what you want to be thinking about is gold. Jack, back to you. Contextualize what we just saw. So Dan is saying that when growth and inflation are running hot, you want to have uh, oil and copper. That's when they do well. However, if inflation is hot, but growth not so much and it's slowing down, that's when you want to shift your exposure more to gold. So my question for you, Jared, is number one, do you agree that, that during stagflationary times, gold is, gold is king, essentially? And number two, to what sense do you see slowing growth in the economy right now? You know, Ash mentions there's slowing growth in China based on retail sales. The Empire uh, State Manufacturing Index is seeing a bit of a, a grind down in growth as well. And if inflation continues to run as hot as you think it will, but growth is sort of on the back foot, do you think that gold will be the best way to play that? Um, so I agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, I don't like this slowing growth narrative that is developing okay i don't think i don't think this is I, i've said this on the show before like the, the the inflation that we're experiencing right now is not is not analogous to the inflation that we experienced in the 1970s it's it's very different and even though the rate of change of some of these numbers is kind of dropping um i, I think a lot of people are looking at this slowing growth and they're saying oh my god this is recessionary and this justifies what's going in the bond market, and there's this whole narrative about it. Um, growth is coming off a very high level to a slightly less high level, okay? So I think that all these cyclical inflation hedges like energy, I think they do continue to work, you know? I think gold should work too. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I mostly agree with the statement. Yeah, Reminds me a little of the framework that Dan set up uh, of what uh, we've seen Darius Dale talk about in the grid view uh, of the economy, trying to analyze the relationship between growth and inflation. Uh, guys, let's jump in. We have some great questions here from the audience. Uh, here's one that comes to us from Christopher Moore from The Exchange, and this one's to Jared. Uh, it's a great question. What is your take on, quote, markets don't fall when everyone is ready for it, close quote. Surely this is one of the most hated rallies Volume has been declining since July. Well, I don't. I think sentiment is actually pretty neutral right now. I would not say that it's overly bullish. I would not say that it's overly bearish. 
I mean, for sure you have, you know, people who are perma bears that, you know, think the market is going to collapse in any time. But I think, I think sentiment is pretty neutral, which I think is, is constructive for the rally to continue, which is what happened today. By the way, this is the Chumbawamba market, right? It gets, knocked, it gets knocked down and it gets up again. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, this is before Jack's time, Jared. We got to fill it. <laughs> 1996. So actually, that's when you were born, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anyway, so no, I know really like, the price action today is is pretty emblematic of like what's going on with the stock market. Like it just it it doesn't die. There's it continues to suck people in. So yeah, I, I you know if you were to I'm supposed to be the the expert on sentiment. I think it's I think it's pretty neutral and I think it's pretty constructive. Over to you in a second, Jack, but Jared, set up a little bit how you look at sentiment, what your gauges are, uh, and how you make that determination. Um, well, you know, I, I, it's, it, people ask me this all the time. Like, how do you, how do you uh, analyze sentiment? I and think it's, I've asked you this before. Yeah, it's, and I think what I told you is that it's, it's voodoo. Like, it's, there's nothing, quanti I mean, look, there's sentiment surveys, there's like AAII, and there's all kinds of technical indicators and put call ratios and skew and stuff like that. And you can look at that stuff, but really generally it's me spending too much time on Twitter and just listening to what people are saying. You know, actually, I, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but I, I don't tweet a lot. You know, I tweet like five or six times a day, but I spend most of my time really paying attention to what other people are saying. And I use that as inputs for my own analysis. Yeah. If you Jared, don't follow I, Jared Dillian on Twitter, you should at daily dirt app. Yeah. Uh, Jared, I want to lean into the voodoo a little bit. And you, I know that a lot of, not a lot, but sometimes is it what a strong signal to you is when there's a headline on a major magazine for a particular story that has been going up and up. So for example, I think when Bitcoin was on the cover of Barron's, that signaled to you a top. And I think the timing was relatively right based on the price action from then to, to, till, till now. Um, do you think that the deflation narrative, the recession narrative, the growth is slowing narrative, are you seeing any signs of that where, you know, smack the Wall Street Journal goes down on your table and you see the story and you say, hmm, this is fully priced in? No, it's 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 not priced in. I think I think it's in the early stages of being priced in. And I think if the data deteriorates some more, uh, you'll start to see some articles on it. I mean, the thing you have to remember about the profession of journalism and I'm not like crapping on journalism because we're all sort of journalists here, right? But what journalists do is they don't predict the future. They they write about what's hot, what's new, what's in the news right now, what's getting the most clicks. And that generally marks short-term tops and bottoms in sentiment. So I haven't really seen any articles about this slowing growth narrative, but I'm I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll see some in the next couple of weeks. Boy, that's exactly right, uh, Jared. I want to change my uh, my Twitter bio to sort of journalist. But, you know, kidding aside, that's what we do here. And that's one of the reasons why we're always so happy when you can join us here on Real Vision Daily Briefing and then some of the other content that we do here, because we try and look beyond the headlines. We try and look beyond uh, what the sentiment indicators are in terms of the popular culture and actually look into the story and why it's so important to have conversations uh, like these. Jack, I'm sorry, you were going to say. Yeah, I think that so often there are headlines in the news where it's stock market crashes or something, and it's, it's down 770 basis points from its all-time highs. It didn't crash, and it's cra stock crashes on inflation fears. And why inflation fears? Because 
we saw some index. But actually, if you look at the uh, inflation break-even rate, which is what the market is pricing, forward inflation derived from the Treasury in inflation-protected security yield, uh, the TIPS yield, actually inflation break-evens went down. So it's I, I, I agree uh, with what Jared, Jared said. And it's not the journalist's fault. It's just that they have a obligation to put out content like five times a day. And, and that's sort of what the result is. But you know, we here at Real Vision, we like to go a little bit deeper. And Ash, that's why I'm really glad that you mentioned in the beginning the two-year rate of change data. And this is something that you know, macro investor Teddy Valley has shared with me, that essentially these yearly comps are nonsense because you're comparing uh, now to, to last year and everything was messed up by the pandemic and then the according enormous amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus. So of course, growth is going to look red hot in March and April and May, and it's going to cool down from there. So a lot of people are using that two-year rate of change, which which I think makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, it's a good way to normalize to get out some of the pandemic bounce back to understand where you are relative to effectively what was trend pre-pandemic. By the way, talking about journalists and headlines, I have to say, just crossing right now, this is a CNBC uh, headline from the Biden speech, quote, Biden says Afghanistan war was a lost cause vows to continue aid and diplomacy that just crossing the wire right now from cnbc obviously a a sobering headline um talking of sobering jared uh here's a question uh that comes to us from eric frith uh the question is what's the best way to prep a portfolio for stagflation uh gold for sure um actually stagflation is tough because everything everything loses, you know, stocks lose, bonds lose, uh, commodities are generally okay. I mean, if you go back to the '70s, like that was a great time for commodities. And if you know, if if you know anything about the turtle traders, like that's how those all the trend followers, like that's how they got their start was trend following all these commodities in the 70s and the 80s you know so there's i mean there is this saying that there's there's always a bull market somewhere um <laughs> and uh that's you know it's totally true you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, uh, Jared, I think that is a uh, tagline for Jim Cramer's show. There's always a bull market somewhere. Jared, what is, so it sounds like you are obviously enormously, you, you remain bullish on the energy trade, but that's a long-term view. Are there any bull markets now that you're excited about now where you wouldn't hedge it by saying, yeah, the next three months are probably going to be rough, but it's a long-term story? Uh you, you really want to know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm really paying attention to NFTs right now. Um, I'm super interested in NFTs. And actually, uh, for my MFA, I'm taking an art history class, and I'm doing a paper on NFTs, which is kind of cheating because it's really a finance paper for an art class. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, you it, it's, it's, it's actually, you no, know, so this is kind of the second wave of the NFT bull market. The first wave was back in March. Uh, which peaked when Beeple sold every day's for $69 million, right? And then kind of the air came out of it, and now people are trading NFT penguins for half a million dollars and stuff like that. 
You know, the interesting thing is, and I wrote about this for my daily dirt nap tomorrow, you know, I'm building a house and I'm thinking ahead about what kind of art I want to put in the house. And there's a lot of digital artists that I like. So I went online and I'm looking at some of their stuff that you can get in NFT form. And it's actually pretty reasonable. It's like 500, 600 bucks. Um, you know, so you get this JPEG and you take it to a printer and you blow it up and you make a print and you stick it on your wall. Um, I think over time, this NFT market will sort of converge where all the crap that people are buying right now, which are really, you know, just like Beanie Baby collectibles. I think that stuff will decline in value, but actual good digital intellectual property will probably increase in value over time. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, I have to tell you, over the weekend, um, a friend asked me to send him a couple of articles about NFTs. And uh, obviously, Board 8 Yacht Club, Pudgy Penguins, uh, these things that are very much uh, on the radar of people who follow NFTs. Uh, so I sent this guy two articles that were especially interesting to me. And I realized after I clicked the send button that they were from The New Yorker and The New York Times. Not our friends at Coindesk, not our friends at Decrypt, but The New Yorker and The New York Times. It's interesting to me that NFTs with digital art, with the appeal uh, that these the, these sort of artistic renderings have, breaking through into public consciousness uh, in a way that you don't see, for example, The New Yorker is not writing about liquidity pools. Yeah, The New Yorker is, has actually, I've read their NFT stuff and it's actually really, really good. It's yeah. very good, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting to me, it's just an indicator of the, of that almost crossing the threshold of consciousness. Well, you know, Ash, you really led the Real Vision crypto community during the first NFT bull run by you had your NFT. Uh, it was it was was it called irresponsibly or, or um, aggressively neutral? I don't know if it was exactly that, but it was you and the red microphone, which you no longer have. Now you have a, a black and gray microphone. Does that make it more valuable, Jack? The fact I think, that I think it, I think it does. We need like a, a next a, a skin. Um, I was actually planning on doing some work. Uh, but then the bull market sort of turned over. So now I'm going to have to revisit um, um, that possibility. But I, I, I want to say that with NFTs, and Jared, you said you said all the crap you said will be, will be flushed out. It really is, I think, de dependent on the product that you buy. If you buy a piece of art for $1,000, you know, it, it may be worthless in five years at the same time that Ethereum is, is $20,000 per, per um, unit. So it, it really is very, very dependent. Jared, what what drew your interest into NFTs? I don't I don't think I've quite caught the bug yet, but I'm looking looking to be you know swept away. Well, it, you know because I'm a music guy, right? So, um, you know, uh, the internet killed the music industry. You know, Napster. I mean, if you go back to 1999, 2000, the ability to share, uh, you know, for somebody to burn a CD into MP3s and share them on the internet, I mean, destroyed the music industry and. You know, the music industry is doing fine, but it's changed over time and it's turned into this winner take all business model yeah. as a result of that. But I've always been interested. You know, I, I've been saying this for a year. If there was a way to protect digital intellectual property, to preserve property rights with digital IP, that would be one of the greatest innovations of all time. And, and, yeah. and NFTs aren't perfect. They consume a huge amount of energy. There's a lot of fees. They're not easy to use, but I think that'll get better over time. Yeah, for sure. In fact, um, Ethereum switching to proof of stake, many of these uh, NFTs, uh, in fact, the majority of them are based in Ethereum, has the potential to do that. It's also interesting. There's an argument that goes, Jared, as you probably well know, uh, that the music industry uh, killed itself 
by suing its own customers and not figuring out a way to give people an opportunity. I think there were a lot of people who were using Napster that would have been thrilled to pay 99 cents per song, but there wasn't a legal opportunity for them to do it. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, you know, the industry happened. Well, what happened to the industry? And it was a brutal one. So I'm curious to see if you're optimistic uh, about some of these new technologies to really empower artists uh, on the music side, on the graphic and visual side. Are you optimistic about what you see coming down the pike or are you still saying it's too early to say? No, I'm, I'm very optimistic. And I, I think, you know, it's it's it, it's the like the top of the first inning. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do. But uh, there's there's a DJ that I follow. His name is Davi uh, and uh, he's like a deep house DJ, uh, kind of a quiet guy, kind of an introvert. Um, and he actually did a long post on Facebook about six months ago about how screwed, you know, because basically he's producing these tracks and he's selling them on Beatport and he's getting like 90 cents. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. So then he goes to Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, and they sit down and produce a track together. And of course, Brian Armstrong doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Like he's based, you know, he's just kind of along for the ride. But they produce this track. And they sell it as an NFT for $27,000. Pretty cool story. Jack, any final thoughts on Deep House? On Deep, <laughs> I, I just want to listen to, to Jared's uh, next release. That's what I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd, I'd buy a Jerry Dillon NFT. I'd, I actually, I thought about doing an NFT of the very first issue of the Daily Dirt Nap. Ooh. Oh, cool. That would be a good one. I'm yeah. also long on Jared Dillon from the music side. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my so NFT is, is reading a, me reading a book that is out of, um, copyrights. So something like, you know, where are all the customers yachts or some sort of classic book like that. You can do like an Andy Kaufman reading of the great Gatsby. <laughs> I am, uh, Jared, because now that we're deep in the world of crypto, how are you viewing Bitcoin and Bitcoin's rise over the past month and a half? You're really on the inflation trade. I know you, you've written, what if I was, my thesis was right about inflation, but I'm just not owning the right assets. Mm. Yeah, so I, I did a piece in the Daily Dirt Nap. I think it was today's issue, maybe. Um, and I, I said, okay, he, we, we have the inflation thesis and we have conviction that that thesis is correct. Do we have the right portfolio? And I looked at the portfolio that I have and I said, you know what, like, this isn't really like a 10x portfolio. Like if you, I mean, this is a generational thesis. Like this is like a once in 30 year opportunity. And if you get it right, you don't want to make 2x, you want to make 10x. And I'm looking at my portfolio. I'm like, this is kind of a 2x portfolio. So I actually posed the question to my readers. I said, what is the 10x asset that benefits from inflation? And it was literally like, like head slap. It's Bitcoin. Like that's what it is. And it's the one thing that I don't own because I, I basically, I traded it and I sold out of it uh, back in the beginning of this year and I never bought back in. And I'm actually, I, you know, it, it, I, it's, I don't have, I don't have the right inf inflation play. That's, that is what seems to be working right now. It is so interesting to look at the correlation between Bitcoin uh, and inflation and how it's varied over the years. Yes, but. Ash, that is a great question, and there's 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 so much you can get into. But one would argue that a true inflation hedge would increase or decrease alongside the CPI. So the fact that gold has performed meagerly over the past decade 
that actually indicates to me that it's been a pretty good inflation hedge because inflation has been muted. Something that increases a thousand times while inflation you know, continues to pace at 2% per year, it seems that there's a lot more going on there. Um, and I specifically, I've, you know, the, the folks at Quant Insight have done a lot of work on this. And at least as of a few months ago, I think the biggest drivers, macro drivers of uh, Bitcoin were uh, the Chinese, the five-year Chinese credit default swap, sovereign that, because a lot of action in China, that may be over, as well as uh, some curve steepeners and um, central bank uh, uh, balance sheet expansion expectations as measured by swaption volatility. So yeah, the whole, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Listen, Jack, this starts to remind me of the stories that were written about how uh, news stories with Anne Hathaway, the actress from The Princess Bride, uh, correlated with rising uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock prices. Uh, you know, this idea that Hathaway, Hathaway, you can find these weird spurious correlations if you if you crawl a deep enough data set. But it almost seems to your point uh, is that all the old correlations, the the traditional chestnuts you mentioned, uh, what happens with the bond market when you get piping hot uh, CPI prints, it seems like a lot of this is breaking down. Oh, yeah. And, and I'd say that what the goal of principal component analysis is to avoid exactly those spurious um, correlations. Jared, from a few, oh, I hope you remember this, from a few months back in one of your daily dirt dumps, you had something where it's like the Fed prints money burr, uh, and that's sort of the like IQ quotient, I guess. And then you had yes. someone say this really complex thing in the middle, blah, blah, blah. But then, and then really smart people actually understand it. So maybe I'm in the middle where I'm saying this extremely complicated thing, but maybe, it, maybe you are right that Bitcoin, yeah, hey, uh, Bitcoin's denominated in dollars, and the more dollars there are, more, yeah, that's that's called the uh, that's called the tyranny of the mid curve. Yeah, people yeah. people in the middle make things way more complicated than it needs to be. If Fed's printing money, it's going up. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm doomed to be in the middle. You know, <laughs> this is uh, one of those shows that I wish could never end. But we're coming to the conclusion here. We've run about a few minutes over. Uh, Jack, final thoughts. Um, I think it everything will hinge um, on the Federal Reserve's tapering and the market's expectations of them. Growth we, is we can slowing. can record that, Jack, and use it as your final thoughts for like the next six months. It's like <laughs> No, well, I got to say it in a different way so people feel like it's fresh, even though I'm saying that. No. Um, Just change I, your shirt. I, I think that, I mean, things are getting a little, a little steep. Things are fresh. I feel like, um, I don't know, there are more reasons to be bearish now than a few months ago because everything is peaked. Like, yes, growth is still positive, but growth itself is decelerating. Um, liquidity is decelerating. I don't know. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be a Cassandra right as we end the show over time. But uh, I want to hear what Jared's final thoughts are. Yeah, I was going to say, final thoughts to you, Jared. Uh, you know, I think we just, we got to get through to Labor Day. You know, um, I got probably the most out-of-office replies today than I have ever. Uh, people are taking the last two weeks of the summer off. Uh, it's going to be, it's, you know, I mean, this is like, you know, this is just trader talk, but when, we, when we get, when we get back after Labor Day, if things are going to be rocking and people are, people are going to have risk to transfer. So it's going to be exciting. It's going to be a fun time. Jared, Hey, as always really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Thanks for watching everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.